Hello, my name's Allison, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. The truly happy person doesn't follow wicked advice, doesn't stand on the road of sinners, and doesn't sit with the disrespectful. Instead of doing those things, these persons love the Lord's instruction, and they recite God's instruction day and night. They are like a tree replanted by streams of water, which bears fruit at just the right time, and whose leaves don't fade. Whatever they do succeeds. That's not true for the wicked. They are like dust that the wind blows away, and that's why the wicked will have no standing in the court of justice, neither will sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord is intimately acquainted with the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is destroyed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kendra, and I'm a loud talker. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lori. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 15, 1 through 5. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Gospel of the Lord. Have you ever stopped to ask what the goal is of a certain activity? What is the goal? Maybe if you're a young person getting ready to go back to school, you say, what is the goal of school? You know, why am I doing this? Or as our kids sometimes ask, what's the goal of learning math? I mean, really, there are calculators, you know. What is the goal? What is the point? What is the end to which this is moving? Earlier this summer, we turned that that question specifically to our work. And we said, what is the goal of work? And we said, well, the goal of work from from a Christian lens is that we collaborate with God and cultivate his world. We collaborate, right? And so we talked about that as being the goal. But oftentimes in life, we get goals confused with results. We get a goal mixed up with a result. And so while the goal of work might be to collaborate with God and to cultivate his world, to make something good from the earth, we get that confused with the result. And the result is that you might earn a paycheck, that you might start a business, that you might provide work for others. And so all of a sudden, the, re- the thing that should be the result becomes the goal. And so you say, why do I work? Well, I work because i got to have money. I work because I want to have a better vacation. I work because I need a new house. I work because... And all of a sudden, the things that, that were good and proper results 
make terrible goals. In other words, there are some things in our life that they're good and fine as results because they sort of happen. But when you make them the goal, they become these cruel and unforgiving taskmasters. And you can think of different situations where you confuse the goal with the result. I mean, actually, even in school, if the goal is to pass a certain test, it's like, well, we, gotta, we just got to check the box, we just got to get this grade, we just got to pass. If that's the goal, it starts to feel a little disordered. But if the goal is to learn and to love learning, guess what often results? You end up kind of knowing things. Not all the time, but you end up being able to pass but the goal is to say, I've, just, I've got to master this thing. I love this. And so it is even with the Christian life. What is the goal of Christian living? If we were to answer that, um, invariably we would say something like, well, the goal of Christian living is to, you know, maybe you'd say to be a better person. Or maybe you'd say, you know what, I, I think the goal is um, to, to win as many people to Christ as possible. I, the goal of the Christian life is to reach the lost at any cost. Or, or the goal is to be really sweet and kind. The goal is to improve. The goal is, right? And we'd say, wait a minute, hang on. Is that, is that really the goal? Is that really the goal of Christian living? Or are those things the result? Are all those things that we're often drawn by? And so I want to be that kind of person. Some of you, you come to ch- you've come to church or come back to church because your goal has been, I've got to get my life back together. I've been a mess. I've made a mess. Things have been out of order. It's chaos. But now I'm going to get my life back together. And so the goal is getting my life back together. Therefore, I'm going to come to church. And I want us to challenge that assumption, to challenge that premise. Is that really the goal? Our gospel reading this morning came out of John 15, and this is Jesus speaking. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we were to ask ourselves what Jesus would say the goal is, I think very clearly we'd say, wait a minute. It is abiding in Jesus that is the goal and fruitfulness that is the result. Abiding in Jesus is the goal, and fruitfulness is the result. So you say, wait wait a minute, Glenn, you mean mean I'm not coming to church so that I can get my life back in order, and I'm not coming to church so I can be a better person? You mean I'm not coming to church to behave better and stop doing those bad, sinful, shameful things and start doing these things? So many of us are programmed to think about Jesus in moralistic terms. So many of us are deeply programmed to think church, God, religion, dress nice, act right, smile, wave, hello, good morning, God bless you, and then leave. Because <laughs> it's exhausting to keep that up. But we're convinced that the goal is to be a better person. But Jesus is saying, actually, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Remain in me, 
Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. That the way of this new life, that the way this new life works, is not by us willing ourselves and making the goal behavior modification. I remember Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, talks about the gospel of sin management, where all of a sudden the gospel is no longer, behold, Christ has come, God with us to redeem and rescue. He is now the vine. You're connected to him. The gospel has become sin management. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Here's a few tips how you can stop doing that. Here's a few, here's a few more little bits of inspiration how you can start doing that. And then you'll modify your behavior, manage your sin, and die a happy person. Is that it? Or is what Jesus is saying in John 15 something more beautiful than that? Is Jesus saying, no, 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 listen, listen. I'm drawing you into this intimate, personal, communal thing. Abide in me. Fruitfulness is a result. A changed life is part of the result. But the goal, your goal is not to will yourself to be different. Your goal is to abide. Then you say, well, well, that's good. That's good. Okay, so, so how? <laughs> how? Oftentimes, as Christians, there's kind of two pitfalls that we, we tend to kind of fall into. The first is to say, okay, okay, well, okay, Glenn, if you say that this is what I need to do, then what's the formula? There's got to be a formula. And if you've been around church for a while, churches are always scratching their heads about discipleship. How do we do discipleship? So-and-so just came out with a new program, and it's got a six-part video series and workbooks. Yes! This is the answer to discipleship. And then you try that, and you do it, and you're like, eh, I mean, it's helpful. And we're always looking, where is that template? Where is that formula? If only there were a formula. Or the rest of us, maybe depending on your personality, you're like, sweet, abiding. No formula, man. This will just come naturally. And 10 years later, and you're like, why is it that the only thing that comes naturally is sin? Why is it that selfishness is still so darn natural? You know, if you've ever learned an instrument or learned a new language or even learned a new sport, there's a kind of muscle memory in playing music or in, in, in learning a language, the internal kind of brain stuff that doesn't come naturally at first. That's very awkward. It, 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 in fact, when we teach um, music, when I learned music, the first step my teacher said was not, Glenn, write a song. <laughs> the first step was, play these scales. Scales. I want to create. I want music to just come naturally out of my very fingers. Now, we would never think this about music, but we do think this about the spiritual life. And so we think, well, I, I've, been, I've, I've gone up to receive prayer. Now I'm just waiting for mm, patience. Wow, I am such a patient person. My gosh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I'm just patient all the time. Well, you know, it takes practice. Our New Testament reading this morning was Peter saying, make every effort 
In fact, numerous times in his letter, Peter says, make every effort. I think Peter knew how much effort it took. You know what I'm saying? Peter, Mr. Lord, you will never go to the cross and die. And Jesus saying, Peter, the devil's kind of speaking through that. What? Peter, I will never deny you, Lord. I've got so much motivation to be the perfect disciple. And Jesus says, you're going to fail, Peter, but that's okay. This life of following me is going to take some practice. And practice means that you'll fail. What? But know that, Peter, even in the midst of all of that failing and trying and getting it, that you are loved, Peter. Peter, know that you're still my friend. And so Peter then, years later, as a leader of the church, says, my little flock, make every effort to add to your faith. And you see Peter thinking, oh man, do I remember So the one group says, well, I need the magic formula. The other group says, this is just going to come easy. And somewhere in the middle is this thing of saying, listen, it takes practice. It takes repetition. It actually takes imitation. This is why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the the images in that language is of a student learning to write back back in the days where you'd have a slate and to learn to write Greek, you would have to trace over these letters because these are not easy letters to write. And you would go over the, the slate and go over the pattern again and again and again. And Paul is saying, listen, my life has taken on the shape of the life of Christ. If you would just retrace this, retrace this, retrace this, retrace this, copy this, follow this. Ah, that's not a formula, but there are things that we imitate. There are practices that we embrace. But rituals and rhythms can go wrong. When rituals and rhythms go wrong. And it's important to name the ways that they go wrong. One of the ways they go wrong is when we think we must do it. I have to. I must. It's legalism. You're just kind of bound. You wake up in the morning and you're like, I I really want to go have breakfast because I'm starving, but I must read my Bible first. And you're like... No, I must, I must, I must. And it's, you're, you're bound to the kind of this legalism. I said I was going to read my morning psalm. And your stomach's like... <laughs> you end up skipping breakfast, but you had your morning psalm. And you go to work, and you're yelling at everyone at work because you didn't have breakfast, you know, or coffee. Lord, help us. But there's this legalism that says, you must, you must, you must, you must, you must. That's when a ritual or a practice goes wrong, Right? Another way when it goes another t- way it goes wrong is when we think we must do it perfectly. Perfectionism. Well, I committed to you know to to praying, and if I just miss one day, it's, oh God, you're so disappointed in me. I'm so sorry, God. Just weeping. I met a young person once. He's like, I just really am struggling with sin and just un- disobedience. I'm thinking, well, what is it? young man, you know, I just, I, there are days I don't read my Bible. It was really precious. That's, that's good, but there's a bondage that's come with that. A bondage of perfectionism that says, you've got to do this perfectly or else. It's linked to performancism, if that's, if we can coin that word. Performancism of saying, I've got to, And all of this is also closely connected with this third thing of that when we feel we ought to, it's the moralism. That somewhere in the back of your mind, it's like, well, you know, Jason, if you were a good Christian, you don't fast? 
and there's this little voice in our head, and we're convinced that voice is God. And the voice is saying, mm, 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 mm. you could be like Abby and the worship team, just worshiping me, singing my praises, but you and your secular music. You feel like you ought. I ought. I, I ought. Why are you doing this right now? Because I think I should. Just pray. And there's this incredible... But that's why rituals and rhythms go wrong. But do you know they, they can do certain things really well? One of the things they do really well is they function in a way that... They function in a way like roots. They connect us to the source. So some of the practices that are like roots are Sabbath, this day of space for the Lord, prayer, sacred reading. It means reading the scriptures, but it also could mean reading great texts. Some, some people love to reflect on the sermons of certain preachers. Uh, <laughs> that was not a hint at my sermons. I, I mean like Jonathan Edwards or some of the great you know, that have gone by. That's spiritual reading, sacred reading. Other practices kind of function like a trellis to the vine. That's really interesting because... Along the way, as spiritual formation stuff, as spiritual practices have developed over the centuries, one of the images closely connected to having a pattern for your life is this image of a trellis. A trellis, you know, the thing that you use when you're growing tomatoes or, or you know, grape vines, something that gives it support. So there are practices that they are not themselves the relationship with God. Let's say it that way. They are not themselves the thing that connects you to God. That is grace. That is the Spirit. That is because of Jesus. But they are the things that give support to, you, to that. And so trellis practices, some of them are related to how we relate with one another, friendship, covenant relationships, marriage, singleness, celibacy. Some of them are practices related to restoring, the care for our own body, play. Some of them are related to reaching out, work, justice, witness, this particular kind of outline has come from this book that was our summer reading. How many of you read, borrowed, or bought, or read at least part of the book that we, that we kind of passed out the summer? God, My Everything by Ken Shigematsu. Ken's a great um, pastor and friend. And, and so he has this little visual here of the trellis and the root system. You can put it up. Uh, it's hard to read all of that. Um, but the roots are kind of on the bottom, Sabbath, prayer, sacred reading. They're the vertical lines. And then the horizontal lines are the ones that go across, relate, and restore, and reach out. So in early centuries, Christians developed different ways of kind of saying, what are the practices that root us, that connect us to Jesus, the source? What are the practices that support us? The Eastern Orthodox Church came up with something called the, the trifold, the threefold way. It involves contemplation and practice and theory. But by the 5th century a man named Benedict came up with a rule. Now, rule, we hear rule, we think dogma. Rule, in this sense, means pattern. And Benedict fled the city to, to, find, to escape some of the sinfulness around him, and he found that there were others who followed him. And so because there were people following, he decided to come up with an order, a pattern, a rhythm to their day, and it became known as the rule of St. Benedict. It led to the founding of several different monasteries and actually was a big part of Christianity spreading throughout pre-Europe Europe Europe, before churches were even planted. So before there were priests able to minister, there were these little communities that were blossoming up throughout pre-Europe Europe. Europe. And the way these communities 
um, survived was by practicing these rhythms together. So in Ken's book, what he, what he talks about is this idea of saying, you know, the rule need not be the same for everyone. Because again, this is a grace-filled, spirit-discerned. And in fact, one, one, of, the, one of the best phrases I came across in, in, in studying about this this week is that a, a pattern for your life is not usually decided, it's discerned. In other words, if we get in the mentality of like, okay, what's my rule of life? I'm going to decide to get up at six. and do that. Oftentimes that reeks of legalism. But when we say, I'm not, it's not about me deciding it, it's about me discerning it, that's when we start to pay attention to the Spirit. And to say, Holy Spirit, how are you in my everything? What rhythm, what practice are you inviting me into as I wake up, as I lie down, as I talk to my children, as I play with my friends, as I... So we're not, it's less about us deciding it as much as it is about us discerning it. So I invited this morning six people to come and and be a little panel for us this morning. If you guys would all come down, and one of you can grab the mic from the pulpit uh, up there, the the reading lectern, Um, that would be great. Uh, Give them a hand as they come. Here, let's do this. We need seven chairs, so there we go. I'll stand. Um, yep, thank you. You guys can hold this. Let's see. So, yeah, I think I, think I have my first questions for you. Oh, okay. so, yeah. um, this is Dr. Stephen Todd. Many of you know Stephen. He pastored for how many years, Stephen? Lots. Lots of years, 20-some years, yeah. vineyard pastor, and then um, has spent... 14 years traveling to Africa to train pastors, uh, Rwanda, West Africa currently at the moment, and then now he's also um, the director of the King's University Regional Campus here in Colorado Springs. That is quite a bio. Okay. It's it's very impressive. Yeah, yeah. You don't even need a rule of life. You just, yeah, anyway, okay. Uh, And then then this is my beloved wife, Holly, um, mother to our four children. And today is our 13th wedding anniversary, so there you go. Nothing says I love you like, would you be on a panel with me at church, honey? (laughs) And then next to her is my dad, who I, along with my mom, I've just watched model so many of these wonderful practices, and so I wanted him to be a part of this as well. Next to him is Etienne Hardray who is an entrepreneur in our city, an amazing young man. And I just thought, okay, from a business professional entrepreneurial perspective. And then over here is Steve Hoffman, who has spent so many years of his life with missions organizations uh, and agencies, currently works for Vision Quest. Am I right in that? Yes. And uh, Steve, I I, I thought Steve might bring a good light even on thinking about work and witness and, and, and some of that perspective. Next to him is Becca Nicholson, Becca Leander Nicholson, of Sunflowers Band fame, and uh, yee-hee, and, um, and Beck is going to give us again another perspective from a young a female professional, how do these rhythms make sense to you? Uh, next to her is Lisa Beck, who has been a dear friend to us, her and her husband, uh, Brad. Lisa's been the preschool uh, teacher for all of our children so far, and she still is friends with us, which is uh, remarkable. Um, <laughs> But, but Lisa is also pretty involved with the Eldridges and their ministry and shares as well. And so, again, just trying to give a, a variety of different perspectives. So, are you ready, panelists? 
Okay, this is so formal. Can you buy a vowel? No. Okay. I will try to direct some questions to each, and, each one of you. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll point you out. <laughs> there are no points. There are no cars. There are no prizes. Uh, I'll, try to point, I'll try to address specific questions to different ones of you. If you'd make your, keep your response to about under a minute, that would be really awesome. And then maybe as we get into it a bit more, if you want to, ooh, I want to jump on that, or ooh, I have something to add to that, uh, feel free to raise your hand, and I may or may not call on you. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is too much fun. Okay. Holly, we'll start with you. So there are a lot of uh, moms with young children in the room, and, and you hear a sermon like this, and you think, I am overwhelmed. There is no way. How does this even work? So for you, is any sort of rhythm, just first question, is any sort of rhythm even possible in this season of life? Yes, I think so. <laughs> um, yeah, this is something that I've been thinking about and focusing on for a number of years, and there have been areas in general that I really struggle with and other ones um, that have been more of a strength and one that Glenn and I have been talking about lately that I'm still in the process of probably making a strength, but something I am focusing more on would be in the area of sacred reading. I think as a mom with young children, sometimes we can almost want to dismiss this area or say, I don't have time, it's too hard, I have too many things in life or children pressing in on me, my life is not at all my own, I'm not, I'm out of control or I don't have the space or they're waking up at 6 a.m., those kinds of things we all think. Um, and so something that's been a helpful resource to me, probably coming from, coming from a more charismatic, non-denominational background, the emphasis typically is on, um, you know, what do I hear from the Lord? Sometimes maybe a feeling of pressure on myself to come up with um, what is the Lord saying or what should I pray? And so I just brought this as an example, and anyone can come and look at it later. But Phyllis Tickle wrote a book called The Divine Hours, and I have it here. And this is something for me in recent years that's been a really helpful resource. Um, it pulls from the Book of Common Prayer, um, from Psalms, from Scripture readings. Um, it's just been a great source for in those moments of the day when I feel like it's difficult to connect intimately with the Lord, or I don't know um, what is the Lord saying to me right now. Um, it has places in the book where you can go quickly to, you know, in the morning or during noontime or in the evening um, to, to try to connect and to really pull in God being the center. So it's, it's, it's basically the daily office, but organized in a very user-friendly way, mm-hmm. which takes the pressure off of you having to come up with words when around you is chaos. Yeah. Lisa, I wanted to ask you uh, some of the things that you shared with me this week via email. It's just sometimes how unpredictable life is, and, and can God be even in the chaos of, of some of that? And I wanted you just to speak to that a bit. He referenced the fact that I lost the book that we are discussing this morning <laughs> and, uh, and was having trouble not only coming up with thoughts, but coming up with the actual book. And... Um, <laughs> that I borrowed from the church. So I, uh, I, I am a little more on the artsy side. And yeah, hold it a little closer. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, this? A little like, okay. oh, right against your chin is great. Yeah, okay. okay. There you go. So I, I tend to be a little more on the artsy side, and, and um, my life and my house kind of reflect that in piles and projects and... Um, I I prefer to look at it as creativity in process all the time. But it makes it hard to say that I actually have rhythms 
and because it doesn't look like that I do. But I've learned as an artist and as a teacher that um, from structure comes freedom. And so there is, there is possibility for me to have rhythm in my life and to have it more flowing, even if it doesn't look like it. So for me personally, what has come out of this um, season of studying this particular aspect of spirituality has been not, not to be down on myself or not to put it, not, my rule would not to be put it in a box, but to let it evolve and to let yeah. it come out, but to still have a ritual. And I, before, it was hard for me to really marry those two things. Mm, that's really good. Uh, Dr. Todd, you, you um, in your email, referenced the time when, when, for you and your wife, Linda, you were at opposite rhythms. And many of you, maybe you're like that, you know, where because of travel or work, you, you want to rest and your spouse wants to work, or they want to rest and you want to work. And so it's different, you know. Yeah, there was a period of time... Uh, Linda was staying with the kids when they were young, and once they were all in school, she went back into teaching. And so, uh, and Linda, as you know, is a school teacher. And when I was a senior pastor, and what you all don't know about Glenn, I can tell you one thing: it's Uh-oh. like a t- it's like a runway, and everything is moving towards takeoff, which is Sunday morning and the sermon. The whole week's energy moves towards that, and then once it's up in the air which is called Sunday afternoon for senior pastors, you crash. <laughs> it's a very and, disturbing metaphor, but, but yes. But, but absolutely <laughs> correct, yes. And the problem was when Linda was teaching, how many are teachers here? You know that Friday at 3 o'clock, life begins. Friday at 3 o'clock, anxiety level for me was just ramping up. Yeah. And so whether or not I called Saturday a, a day off didn't matter. It right. was never. And so we, we just, it was a frustration. And so one of the things Linda and I had to do was really intentionally carve out uh, something that would work together when we were constantly on the wrong rhythm, as it were. And for us, one of those things was getting away, physically traveling and getting away. And you're saying, well, yeah, but you go to Africa and you got lots of miles. Before I got miles... <laughs> We always tried to make some effort on a rather regular basis to get away. In Mark 6, you know, Jesus many times in the New Testament got away to a lonely place to pray. And that always made me feel guilty because I would go to a lonely place and not pray. But in Mark 6, right around the time of the feeding of the 5,000, it says, Jesus said, let's get away to a private place to his disciples. It says, because many had been coming and going, and they had not even had leisure time so much as to have a meal together. There is a restorative rhythm in in a couple or or an individual getting out of town somewhere to just hang with each other. And that's what we would have to do on a regular basis when our rhythms were opposite. That's really good. Um, Becca... You had mentioned, you know, I just wanted your thoughts on Sabbath as a young working professional. Mm-hmm. Is it hard? I mean, in this day of emails, you know, all the stuff, even social media, you know, what is Sabbath yeah. for you? Yeah. It's definitely, um, I think, especially harder when you're in ministry because sometimes ministry can feel like you always have to be doing something. The opportunity is always there. And um, I definitely had struggled with that, finding places to rest. And then when I got married, my husband was much more um, on that page of we need to rest, we need to have a rhythm. 
And so I've learned that more in the latter years. But I remember um, one year we had a really particularly busy year. We were in different airports almost every weekend. And um, there was one particular weekend in a summer that we were going to be home. And I thought, I'm going to get to go to church. And it's going to be just a time, kind of a Sabbath, a rest. And, um, and then we got an email that said, um, there's an opportunity to, to be traveling that weekend. And, and we really felt that that would be just kind of causing burnout. You know, in ministry, you can sense when you're almost at that point. And so we, we declined it. And I found it was so hard for that person to understand why. Sometimes when we, we ask for rest or when we need rest, especially in ministry, the question is like, well... You know, you should either be ill or getting married that weekend to say no, and that was not happening either way. So how do you say no? And um, so we just had to, I just had to feel misunderstood and be okay with that. I think that's the hardest thing in in when you feel God telling you to rest when you know you're going to be misunderstood in that maybe. But um, looking back, that was so key to being able to have longevity and um, and not burn out when, when you know God's calling you to something that's not going to finish tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so. That's just it, isn't it, is that the work is never done, but you have to rest anyway. God got to rest after his work was done, right? But for most of us, we're resting in spite of the work not being done as a sign of saying we trust the Lord. That's really good. Uh, switching a little bit, so we've talked about practices or rhythms in general, and then now we're getting into some of these root things. Dad... I wanted you to, to, to talk a little bit about prayer. Um, my dad grew up in a Hindu family, and then when he met my mom, converted. But that conversion was almost uh, a long journey. So the initial conversion, you, you began praying by... Well, as Glenn has said, you know, when I became a Christian, um, and I didn't have really uh, that relationship with Jesus Christ, my only point of reference was the Lord's Prayer. And I was working at that time in an advertising agency and being the head of client service. Uh, you know, I, I just felt that I needed to just ground myself really in, in the Lord's Prayer. And every morning and every night before I went to bed, I used to just recite the Lord's Prayer because that was the only prayer I knew how to pray in my working condition. But later down the road, when I was born again, while still working and had an experience of God's grace and mercy, uh, you know, my whole prayer life began to take a change because I needed, and I had experienced His grace and I had experienced His mercy in such a wonderful, loving way that I said, God, uh, there's something more to this prayer life. And, and I began to seek and, and added in a facet of a rhythm of waking up early in the morning as, you know, sometimes at 5, sometimes 4.30, or going for early morning church prayer meetings before going to work at 5 and then going to work. But that whole act of just coming to prayer, of just, uh, just in adoration of the God that I had who came and, and really uh, showed His grace to me and life of an unworthy sinner, that I was, you know, that I just needed that. And I, having experienced that, it drew me to just come in adoration, to spend time with him and to pray to him and give him thanks and to confess my need for wisdom and strength every day in office for my children, for my family, for, for my clients that I was going to see, you know, working in an advertising agency and asking God's wisdom and guidance yeah. every aspect. And then when I was... 
pastoring a church uh, in a later stage of my life, that prayer just continued uh, as even as I was preparing my messages, preparing for the people, for God to come and meet them. And that prayer relationship continued on, you know, that act of adoration, the act of saying, I, confessing my need yeah. and, I thanks, and thanksgiving and supplication of prayer needs for the people and praying for the messages, even Sunday mornings, very early, uh, just praying for God's presence to come for every service. And that was my real uh, rhythm of life that, yeah. uh, that still continues, I'm thankful to say. I may miss some, some days, but I don't put a guilt on myself. Yeah. I just know that God is there all the days of my life. Well, so, I think what's you. beautiful is for a lot of people, you know, early morning prayer is an act of displaying your own strength. You know, it's like, well, early morning prayer, I, look how good I am. But I think what's really profound about what you said is that for you, early morning prayer was an act of desperation, was an act of saying, I, I just have to commit this day to you and... Etienne, as, a, as a, someone in the business sector here, even in our city, you want to talk about spiritual practices in your life, even as you're in the marketplace, you know? Yeah, um, the temptation to constantly be busy is everywhere, every day. Um, I'm doing startups mostly, and so everything is happening constantly. It's, all, it's there all the time. Um, and the people around you are working themselves to the bone. And so you always feel like you could get a little bit further if you spent a little bit more time on your work um, or in the office. And yet, um, several years ago, God really kind of impressed on me and said, who is it who really, who really um, causes the result to actually come out of your work? Is it you? Is it your effort? Or is it me blessing you? And I really latched onto that. And so what I've come to learn is, and what I've come to sort of test God in a little bit, is that if I give him the time first, I'm trusting him. I'm really saying, Lord, I'm trusting you in this, that you're going to take the rest of my time that I have available, which is now a little bit less than everybody else I'm competing with, (laughs) and you're going to make it that much more effective Mm -hmm. in my work and in my ministry. So the last startup I did, I found sort of in this discernment kind of way, that I was always the first person at the office by like an hour. Um, I just work well in the mornings, and so I would get there at like 7.30, and everybody else wouldn't get there till 8.30. And um, so I sacrificed that first about half hour to really pray for every office and every employee at the company, mm-hmm. and we had several offices around the globe, so then I would, I would sort of go out in these rings and pray for um, ever further geographic rings and all the customers that we had. Um, and it just... It felt like then, as I walked through the rest of the day, that it was in God's hands, that all the results were in God's hands, and that I'd already left it up to him. Um, And over time, there's a couple other things that we did as well. Um, I would uh, take after lunch every single day and set aside five or ten minutes just to pray. And it felt critically important to me to re-engage midway through the day. Mm. Um, I'm short-sighted, short attention span, I guess. And even halfway through the day, I would get lost in the details of all the work we were doing. And it was worth it to re-engage. That's, that, that's a, another really profound point, because that's an old thing that early Christians discovered, is that we all tend to lose focus. So a lot of these rhythms, even the, day, the divine hours, are every three hours. Um, not because those are holy times, but because we just need recentering every little bit. And so if five minutes during lunch, that's, that's a really good one. Steve, you, you talked a, a bit to me this week via email about 
um, the relationship between Scripture devotionally, but then witness in the public. I want to talk about witness. I want you to talk about sure. that a bit, yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the great gifts to, into my life over the past several years has been the house churches around the world that we are working with in North India, in the Middle East, in other places. And um, it's a very common practice in the house churches as they memorize Scripture together um, to um, ask six questions. And one of those questions is simply this, who is God asking me to talk to about this? And um, what it does is it makes that entire house church very outward focused. And so what I have been doing in my own journey is to ask those six questions, and one of those is, you know, who am I going to talk to about this? Hmm. And it, and so it, as you're devotionally reading, you're saying, Lord, who do you As I'm devotionally reading, like this morning, hmm. um, I was kind of reconnecting with Romans 5.8, which is, uh, it gives us a great image of prayer being incense that rises into the presence of the Father. Hmm. And, um, and uh, whether that's prayer of thanks, whether it's just heartbroken prayer for uh, family members, whether it's um, a fearful, discouraged prayer when ISIS is approaching a village, whether it's um, just being grateful to God for who he is. I mean, these prayers are rising into the presence of God. And so my question was, Lord, um, is there anybody I need to be sharing this with? Mm. And on my walk, you know, I kind of passed several people and and had a chance to talk with a young guy. And, you know, but then the Lord brought somebody to my mind that I'm going to see on my travels in Minneapolis, somebody that's struggling with uh, just the uh, emotional connection in their faith. And so the Lord brought that person to my mind, and I just shot them a text message and shared that scripture with them. And, you know, so mission almost became kind of instantaneous, you know. It, it just flowed out of what I was reading because I asked that simple question. It's awesome. Yeah. What, a great, what a great practice. I would, I would ask all of you like two or three more questions, but we're out of time. And so I just want to thank you all for, for you know, just giving some time to reflect on this this week and for being vulnerable and for sharing it with us. And my hope is for all of us that we can say, look, this can look many different ways. And this is not about guilt and this is not about impressing God. This is about inviting God. Not impressing God, but inviting God into our everything. Amen? Thank you, panelists. We're going to come to prepare our hearts now to come to the table, and this is the central practice for us as Christians, because it reminds us that because of Jesus, every part of our life can now be restored and made whole, because God became human, because Jesus took on flesh. Every part of our humanity, there's no part of your human story or human existence that God cannot now inhabit. God can inhabit all of it. Your work, your play, your working out, your uh, prayer, all of it. And so the cross and the table remind us of that, and it tells us, it reminds us again of the grace that says, you're not in this, you don't belong because you're performed good enough, you're in this because Jesus has welcomed you in, amen? And so we respond with thanksgiving and with surrender, and we say, all right, God, 
come and fill my everything.